The BBC presents Jet Morgan in Journey into Space. April 25th, 1971. For 22 days, the Mars space fleet of nine ships, in line formation and led by the flagship Discovery, has been coasting towards the Red Planet. And although correct speed and course have been maintained, the flight so far has not been without incident. There was the mystery surrounding James Whitaker, construction engineer of freighter ship number two. Frank Rogers found his company so objectionable that Jet decided to transfer Whitaker to the Discovery. Then came a strange message from Control on Earth asking for specific information regarding Whitaker. Meanwhile, freighter number five reported radar signals from an unidentified object lying directly in our line of flight. The indications were that it was a swarm of meteors, so Jet decided to take evasive action. But first, he wanted to transfer Whitaker to another ship and have Mitch, our engineer, now temporarily traveling in number two, return to the Discovery. As there was a rule that no crew member should venture outside a ship alone, Lemmy was ordered to accompany Whitaker. The crossing was made in easy stages, from ship to ship. Is Whitaker in number seven yet? No, Jet. He and Lemmy are hardly in the airlock. Well, let's get that radio, Doc. I'll talk to Johnson. Right. Hello, freighter number seven. Flagship calling. Hello. Flagship Johnson number seven calling. Uh, listen, Bill, the second Lemmy and Whitaker get into your cabin, uh, put Whitaker on, will you? I want to talk to him urgently. As you say, Skipper, I was just about to let them in. That sounded like an explosion. Hello, number seven. Hello, Jet. Look at the televiewer. Look at number seven. The crew's compartment is a total wreck. What? Can't you see, Jet? There's a gaping hole just behind her nose. Hello, Johnson. No point in calling him, Jet. By now, every particle of air that was inside that cabin will have escaped. Yes, but what about Lemmy and Whitaker? They were just about to go into number seven. Hello, Lemmy, can you hear me? Whitaker! How far have they got, Doc, before the explosion came? They just entered the airlock. They must be still in there. Had it filled up? No. Johnson couldn't possibly have had time to do it. Then they're still in the vacuum. It's unlikely they'd have felt anything as a concussion. Except through the floor. Yes, that could be enough to do considerable damage. Might have fractured the helmets or even damaged the suits. Yes, Jet. Hello, Lemmy, can you hear me? He doesn't answer, Doc. Hello, Discovery. Freighter number six calling. Request permission to break in on transmission. Go ahead, number six. Arnett and Whitaker entered the airlock safely, sir. We saw them go in. Doesn't the main door of number seven face you? Yes, sir. Then can you see into the airlock? Can, can you see Lemmy or Whitaker? Afraid not, sir. Johnson or Simmons had already started to close the door. It's not tight shut, is it? No, sir. It's open enough for a man to pass through it. I request permission to go over there. Thank you, Barker. Then prepare to leave then, sir. Yes, but don't go until I tell you. No, sir. Hello, Jet. Lemmy calling. Jet, it's Lemmy. Lemmy Barney, calling Discovery. Hello, Lemmy, can you hear me? Oh, yes, Chet. What happened? Well, there was an explosion of some kind in the crew's quarters. Oh. Are you hurt? I don't think so. I felt the shock. It came up through the floor, then I blacked out. How about Whitaker? He seems to be all right, but I think his radio's out of action. I can't talk to him. Listen, Lemmy, you can't get into number seven through the airlock anymore. But if you feel fit enough, I'd like you to make your way towards the ship's nose and enter the cabin from there. The nose? Yes, there's a gaping hole there now. More than big enough for you to pass through. I? Yes, Lemmy. But a couple minutes 
Moore and Whitaker and I would have been in that cabin. You had a narrow escape. Thank your lucky stars for it. Yes, Jed. But what about Johnston and Simmons's lucky stars? Lemmy, I want you to get inside the cabin and give me a report on the damage. Think you can manage that? Yes, mate. Barker will be coming out to join you. Soon as he's across, have Whitaker take his place in number six. Yes, Jed. But how do I make him understand what's wanted? I can't talk to him. Look, Lemmy, put your helmet next to his. Let them touch. When you speak, he'll hear you. Oh, do I have to get that close? To that geezer? Do as you're told, Lemmy, and don't argue. Yes, Jet. Barker call and have reached number seven of now hitching safety line. Have you in full view? Now walking upside of ship, toward nose. Put in the telescopic lens, Doc. Let's get a closer look. Telescopic lens in. Uh, that's better. Nearing ship's nose. Blimey. What is it, Lemmy? There's a hole here, big enough to drive a bus through. Which way was the force of impact? Inwards. Any vaporization? I'll say. Uh, I thought as much, Doc. A meteor. Yeah. Lemmy? Yes, Jet. I'd like you to go down into the cabin. Can you do that? Through the hole, you mean? Yes, Lemmy. You'd better take the flashlight, Lemmy. You'll need it. Yes, mate. Are you all set? Yes. And here I go. Touching bottom. Now. I want to know if there's any chance of our saving the ship. Yes, Jet. Oh, blimey. What is it? There's another great hole on the opposite side of the cabin. That meteor must have been a colossal size. Swept right through the cabin, clean as a whistle, and took most of the main control panel with it. Uh, that puts Paige of any chance of using the motor, yeah. Apart from that, Jet, everything else seems to be intact. Uh, can you reach the cargo hatch, Lemmy? I'll try. Uh, go carefully. Yeah. Oh. Jet, let me get out of here. What is it? Barker, you pull me up. Quick, mate, pull me up, please. Stand by, Lemmy. Haul it now. Oh, thanks, mate. Oh, I wouldn't go... Back in there again for all the rights in China. Well, what was it? What did you see? Johnston. Or Simmons. I don't know which. Lemmy. Yes, Jet? Get back to the discovery, quick as you can. I'll never do it quicker. And bring Barker with you, as far as number two. Don't I go back to my old ship, Captain? No, you'll relieve Chief Engineer Mitchell in number two. Lemmy will leave you there and escort Mitch back here. Whitaker will stay in number six. Yes, sir. Is that clear, Lemmy? Yes, Jackson. Pull yourself together and... Come on. behind. Abandon her completely. What else can we do? She was hit by a meteor, wasn't she? And a darn big one at that. It's quite likely it came from the outer fringe of the very swarm we're approaching. We've got to take evasive action at once, and that means leaving number seven behind. But she's full of cargo, Jet. Valuable cargo. Just the fuel she's carrying is worth its weight in gold. Mitch, to save the fuel alone would take hours. And meanwhile, we're getting closer to that meteor swarm. If it is a meteor swarm. We've hardly time enough to avoid it ourselves, let alone attempt any salvage operations. Okay, Jet. You're the boss. If you say abandon her, we abandon her. Does that go for Johnston and Simmons and all? Yes, Lemmy. I'm afraid it does. You mean we leave them there? Alone? In that wreck? Lemmy, what else can we do? But if anybody dies at sea, or at least they're given a decent burial. We're not at sea. If we gave them a decent burial, as you call it, all they'd do would be keep going with the ship. They'd merely be outside it instead of inside. That's all. 
Oh. Jet, if we're going to take evasive action, we'd better take it. According to my latest calculations, that object is less than 15 hours away. Right, Doc. Uh, onto your safety couches and strap yourselves in. Order, right, Jet. Uh, as soon as you're set, Lemmy, call up the fleet. Have them all listening out. Yes, Jet. Okay, I'm all set. Me too. Positioning control panels. Hello, space fleet. Flagship Discovery calling. Stand by for Captain Morgan. Uh, thanks, Lemmy. Hello, space fleet. We're going to change course. When I give the word, all ships will tilt their noses 25 degrees upwards from line of flight. When we turn on the motors, the ships will take the new course and be carried high above the meteor swarm. In that way, we may avoid it. Stand by. Okay, Doc. Switch in the main gyro. Gyro, contact. Number one, standing by. Number two, standing by. Number three. Number four. Number five. Number six. Number eight. Twenty one. Twenty two. Twenty three. Number two, Gyro, stand by. Twenty four. Twenty five Number two, cut. Bang on. Steady as she goes. Teleview, Mitch. Teleview, on. 25 degrees. Steady. Cut the main gyro, Doc. Main gyro, cut. How's the rest of the fleet, Mitch? All okay. Except number seven. She seems to be the only one that has moved. Nose pointing downwards. It looks that way, but it's actually the rest of us pointing up. Uh, call in the checks, Lemmy. Right. Discovery, call in space fleet. Stand by now for firing. Check, please. Number one, okay. Ready for firing. Number two, All check. right, Mitch. As soon as they've checked in, Number take three. over, will you? Sure, Jeff. Number four. Five. Six. Number eight. Check's okay. Fleet ready for firing. Hello, Space Fleet. Flagship calling. Firing will be controlled from here. All motors will fire simultaneously. If there's any reason why firing should not take place in 70 seconds, speak up now. And I assume it's okay. Stand by. Firing in one minute. Doc, hmm? what happened to number seven when we leave her? She'll just go coasting on, Lemmy. Just as we'd do if we weren't changing course. On to Mars? Yeah. But being out of action and with no crew to control her, she won't be slowing down as we will. Forty-five seconds. Well, she just goes shooting past then? Oh, no. No, she's not traveling fast enough for that. She's bound to be affected by Mars' gravitational pull. Oh. She'll almost certainly go into an orbit round her until finally she crashes on the Martian surface. We might see her again, then. Possibly. It all depends on how passing through that swarm affects her. Oh, yes. I forgot about that. She'll still be heading straight forward, won't she? With Johnston and Simmons inside her. Yes, Lemmy. Iskadalva, Iskadashamirabo. What is it, Lemmy? Nothing, Jet. Ten seconds. Firing imminent. Five... Four, three, two, one. Contact! Acceleration rate, 100. 200. 300. 400.
1800, 1900, 2000. Cut the motor. Teleview, Lemmy. Teleview on. Well, they're all there, Jeff. Number five lagging behind a bit, but the rest still in formation. Right. Get the radar, Doc. That object should be beginning to drop below us. Right. Let me call up the fleet. See if all crews are okay. And then have them get to work with their radar, too. Yes, Mike. And when you finish, give me control. I'll give them a full report on number seven and tell them we've changed course. Keep listening out, please. We'll call you again shortly. Well, Jeff, what did they have to say? Uh, what could they say? They're just as sorry about losing number seven as we are, but they consider we did the right thing in abandoning her. They think the meteor came from the swarm we're approaching, and we might run close to a few more stray ones before we're through. Well, that's a nice cheerful thought. Uh, what are the latest reports on the swarm's position? We're climbing well above it, Jeff. Good. As soon as we've passed over it and down the other side, we'll have to increase speed slightly to make up for lost time. Otherwise, we're going to be late for our rendezvous with Mars. Now, I'll get to work on the new computations right away. Uh, yes, please, miss. Uh, what about Whitaker? Oh, what about him? Oh, don't you remember, Jet? The last message we had from control before the meteor hit number seven Ooh, was... Oh, good heavens, yes, I forgot all about that. Uh, what was it they said? That the only man they could find answering to Whitaker's name and description was born in 1893, and he disappeared in 1924. What? That was the message we received, Mitch. Did you ever hear anything so preposterous? The director of personnel records wanted to talk to Merdeka. Yes, he did, didn't he? Well, I can hook the main transmitter to the intercom system, Jet. Uh, no, Lemmy, I want to talk to Earth about this whole business first. But if Control want to talk to him direct, why not let him? Because, Lemmy, the whole fleet knows of the uncanny effect Whitaker had on you and Rogers. If there's anything else about him that's unexplainable, I don't want any of the crews listening in on it. Uh, particularly the pilot of number six. He may have to spend the rest of the voyage with him. Oh. Yeah. Hello, Control. Flagship Discovery calling. Come in, please. Are you sure you heard it right, Jet? How could they seriously say Whittaker was born in 1893? They didn't. All they said was the only man they could trace who answered to Whittaker's description was born in 1893. Hello, Discovery. Control calling. Hearing you loud and clear. Got them, Jet. Now, thanks, Lemmy. Coming. This doesn't make sense to me, Doc. Oh, me neither, Mitch. When does Whittaker say he was born? 1940. If you ask me, that's just about right. That'd make him 31, and that's about the age he looked. Yeah, but don't you see, Mitch, the strange thing about it is that 31 is just the age at which the other Whitaker disappeared, in 1924. Yes, but didn't they check up on him before he joined the crew, during his training period or anything? Well, they must have done. Well, if they were going to find anything as fantastic as this, wouldn't they have found it by now? No, I would have thought so. You know, record section must be crazy as coots. A whole bang lot of them. Well, I agree with you, Mitch, but for one thing... And what's that? Whitaker's odd behavior... You took his place in number two, Mitch, so you can't know what I'm talking about. But all the while Whitaker was in this ship, I had a strange feeling of foreboding. Jet, too. Well, I reckon you're all jumping to hasty conclusions. Do you? And what about the inquiries from control? Mere routine. That's what started you off. If they'd asked for information about other members of the fleet, you would have imagined the same things about them, too. Maybe, Mitch. And I hope you're right. Anyway, we'll see what Jet's talk with control produces. Well, gentlemen, 
I'm afraid I've some rather startling news for you. About Whittaker? Yes. What is it, Jack? Well, you remember the journalists who came up to the moon to watch the takeoff? Uh huh. Well, it seems when they returned to Earth, one of them hit on the idea of a personal angle for a series of articles for one of the national papers. Oh, for what? Well, he thought he'd visit the relatives, wives, mothers, so on, and collect first-hand material on what it's like to be the wife of the spaceman. You know the sort of thing. He'd have a job with me. I'm a bachelor. Ah, he'd thought of all that, too. Any of the men who didn't have wives had their parents supply the story. How their sons had always been crazy on space travel since they were kids, always dreamed of going to Mars. Well, he ran four separate articles on us, giving our whole life histories. And apparently, he left nothing out. Go on. When I get back, I'll sue him for defamation of character. Oh, I'll come to the point, Jet. Where does Whittaker fit into all this? That is the point. He doesn't seem to fit in at all. Well, how do you mean? Well, very little information about anybody appears to escape this journalist. Until he started on Whittaker, and there he came unstuck. Oh, how? Well, the first odd thing he struck was that although Whittaker was supposed to hold degrees in astronautical engineering, he'd never been on the roll of the astronautical college. But he must have been. Wait a minute, Doc. He might have faked his diplomas. Oh, quite easily, but that wouldn't have given him the knowledge he's got. He's a first-class engineer, one of the best we have. Uh, then where did he learn? Beats me. And that's not all the story. This journalist, drawing a blank at the Astro College, decided to seek out his relatives. And? Well, in due course, he found his way to his home in Kensington and asked to see his parents, but... He hadn't any. Well, that's possible. Orphans ain't uncommon. No, Lemmy, they're not. But even the parents of orphans don't die before their children are born. Oh, no, I grant you. What was that? The parents of James E. Whittaker died before the Second World War. Oh, but that's impossible. Whittaker wasn't born until 1940. Mitch, let Jeff finish. Oh, go on, but if this is a joke, it's a pretty poor one. A joke, he says. I can't keep from laughing here. But living at the same address as Whittaker had given was a family of the same name, headed by a man of 48 who declared his father's name was James. Born in 1893? Yes, Doc. And this James Whittaker left his home one morning in 1924 and was never seen again. All efforts by the police to find him were a complete failure. Well, it could be a coincidence. Uh, could have been Mitch quite easily. Only Edward Whittaker produced a photograph of his father. Control says it bears a striking resemblance to the one records have of the Whittaker flying with us. What did the Whitaker who disappeared do for a living, Jet? Oh, chief cashier in a large London store. Ah, now, Jet, when this geezer disappeared, did any of the takings disappear and all? <laughs> Not that I'm aware of, Lemmy. Eh, uh, oh, well, that knocks that little theory on the head, doesn't it? Of course, as soon as he realised there was something odd about all this, the journalist took the whole matter up with control, who then took it up with the police. Police records show that the James E. Whitaker who disappeared was identical in every way, physically with the Whitaker now in number six, even to the colour of his eyes. Green, how do you know? If he'd looked at you the way he looked at me sometimes when he was in this ship, you'd know they were green. I swear they used to flash in the dark and all, like a cat. Well, it all sounds very mysterious, but I'm sure there's some rational explanation. Why don't you tackle Whitaker about it yourself? I intend to, but not while he's in number six. Well, how else can you talk to him? Well, when we're safely past this swarm, I'll have him come over here where I can be sure our conversation won't be overheard by the rest of the fleet. Mm, maybe you're right. Until we can get to the bottom of this business, the fewer people know about it, the better. Well, let's forget for now and get back to work. Uh, have you got those figures ready for control yet, Mitch? Yes, Jet, they're on the table. Uh, Lemmy, get in the latest radar reports. Yes, mate. And, Doc, uh-huh. how about some food? It seems ours since we've eaten. It is ours. I'll get it. Thanks, Doc. So, 
On the surface, at any rate, the affair of James Edward Whitaker was forgotten. Jet and Mitch were fully occupied for the next few hours, checking our position and rate of climb and calculating the amount of fuel we'd used in maneuvering over the supposed meteor swarm. It was quite considerable, and what with the loss of the supplies carried in number seven, more than we could afford. For my part, although I did my best to concentrate on my work, my mind kept returning to Whitaker. Time and again, I found myself relaxing from the job in hand and thinking of him and the mystery that surrounded him. On one or two occasions, I even thought I heard his flat, dull voice and once even looked up, expecting him to be standing at my elbow. No matter how hard I tried, I could not get him out of my thoughts. And so it was for four or five hours more until a call from freighter number five brought normal routine to a standstill and all of us running to where Lemmy was working at the radio. Hello, number five. Morgan here. What's the urgent? Have you checked your radar lately? No, there's no need. Four ships are already keeping track of the swarm. Then you better check it quick. Those meteors we're supposed to be climbing over have moved. They're directly in our path again. What? But that's impossible. No, Skipper. I've already checked with number four. His report's the same. All right, number five. I'll check here. Uh, call you later. Sure, Skipper. Mitch. Doc, did you hear that? I heard it all right. Uh, put on the radar, Doc. Let's yeah. take a look for ourselves. Radar on. No object that size could change its position so quickly. It's ridiculous. Maybe, Jet. But there is something in front of us just the same. And the signals are much stronger now. Whatever it is, we're closer to it. But we should be thousands of miles above it by now. Well, we're not. It's less than ten hours away and directly in front of us. Are you sure you figured out the right course, Mitch? Well, of course I did. Last navigational check showed we were coasting exactly along the line we intended. Well, maybe it's an entirely new object now. Perhaps this is a second swarm, one we just didn't know about. Look, Jet, we swept the area before we changed course. There was no reaction then. Ah, that's true. But how do you account for it? Doc, sweep the area below, where the swarm should be. Right. No, Jet, nothing. Either we've changed our course or that thing's moved. I tell you, we haven't changed course. Then we'd better, and quick. If that thing's solid and we... If, if it, it was solid, we'd see it. It would be at least as large as the moon and be reflecting the sunlight. Well, it could have its dark side towards us. In that case, the sun being where it is, it couldn't be directly in front of us. Oh, no, it couldn't, could it? Well, what do we do? All the course again? Unless it proves to be moving out of our path as quickly as it moved in, yes. But if we go on at that rate, we'll have no fuel left. We'll reach Mars, all right, but we won't be able to make a landing. Keep an eye on that thing, Doc. Right. And let me call up the rest of the fleet. Tell all ships to watch it. Get a report from each ship in turn every ten minutes. Right. Still directly in our line of flight, Jeff. Couldn't be more so. That's it, then. We'll alter course again. Go under it this time, back to our original course. If we make it successfully, we'll keep on it. Uh, call up the fleet, Lemmy. Tell them what we're doing. Right. Rotate the televiewer, Lemmy. Rotating. All there, Jet. In close formation. Except for that gap between six and eight. Look, Jet, under the circumstances, don't you think we should close up that gap? It can only be a constant reminder to the crews of six and eight of what happened to number seven. It'd be a tricky maneuver, Doc. Too risky to be safe. The ships are too big to handle that way. They weren't made to move sideways. But couldn't we try? I'm afraid they'll stay as they are. Very well, Jet. Now, get an okay from all ships, Lemmy, will you? Have them open up radar watches immediately. Yes, mate. And, Doc, open up our radar as soon as you're out of your bunk and get to work yourself. Sure. Well, if we haven't cleared it this time, I'm a master. Then maybe it's you that's causing all the trouble. Hey, hey what do you mean by that, Lemmy? Now, come on, you two. Come on. Get down out of that bunk, Lemmy, and stop arguing. We've got work to do. 
Take that. Come over here, for Pete's sake. Now what? That object, that meteor swarm, whatever it is, it's coming back. What? Yes, Jet, look for yourself. It is, too. What on earth is going on? It's been gradually moving back ever since we changed course. It's as though it's trying to block our way. Maybe that's just what it is doing. Don't be absurd, Lamy. How could it? Well, why not? Twice we've altered course, and each time it's moved with us. That's ridiculous. It would be breaking all known physical laws. And how about the unknown ones? It may not be breaking those. I don't know what to think. There's only one possible answer. There are two swarms situated at different heights. And for some reason, whenever we're in front of one of them, we're unable to see the other. Oh, no, Mitch. It must be the same swarm. Well, the same or different. We're approaching it fast. What do we do? Try to avoid it again? We can't duck. We'll have no fuel left at all soon. There's only one thing we can do now. What? Go straight on. Plow right through it. Oh, oh, wait a minute. Get about. Go through it. You mean all fleet? Well, I certainly don't intend leaving anybody behind. But look what happened to number seven, when it met only one meteor. But that must have been of exceptional size. We're not likely to meet another of that caliber in a hundred years. But, Jet, if we deliberately go through a whole swarm of them, even small ones, at least one ship is likely to be hit. Not necessarily, Doc. In fact, the chances are against it. And in any case, small meteors will do us no harm. The meteor bumper will take care of them. Then why go to all that bother to dodge them in the first place? Why couldn't we have just coasted on and chanced it? Because, Lemmy, we don't take chances if we can possibly avoid it. But this is different. Well, you'll never get the fleet to back your jet. It's too risky. Well, it's that or turn back. Oh, no, we're not turning back. There wouldn't really be much point in trying. It'd take us so long to turn the whole fleet round that by the time we were ready to fire the motors, we'd be as good as on the thing anyway. How far off is it now? Less than four hours. Well, how about it? Do we keep going? Or do we rush around in space playing tag with something that's nebulous that we can't even see in spite of its colossal size? Whatever you say, Jet, I'm with you. Me too. Whatever you go, Jet, I go and all. Good. Then call up the fleet, Emmy. I'll talk to them. Yes, mate. Well, or Crim sure like it, Skipper, but if you think it's best, well, we're with you. Good for you, number five. Number six? Major number six calling. That's Whitaker. Uh, is the pilot there, Whitaker? Yes, sir. God bless things, Skipper. Well, how do you feel about it? I'm not too happy. I'd prefer to try further evasive action. Isn't that possible? I just told you we can't spare the fuel. The only course left open to us is to keep on. There could be no turning back. Whatever action you suggest, Captain Morgan, I'm sure it will be right. I wish I could think so too, Whitaker. But thanks all the same. Orders must be obeyed without question at all times. Well, I don't think this is the time to discuss discipline. Now, Peterson... You going to be happy about this? I wouldn't call it happy, Chet, but I'm with you. Whatever you say goes, as far as I'm concerned. Good. Number eight, how about you? Well, as I'm the last to be consulted, and everybody else has been already agreed to plow on, uh, all I can say is, okay. I don't like it, Chet. I think the risk is greater than you care to admit. Well, that's settled. Now, listen carefully, all of you. As a safeguard, suits will be worn from now until further notice. In the unlikely event of your ship being holed, you'll be safe until you can be transferred to another ship. If the discovery is hit and put out of action, command will be taken by number one. Now, that's all for now, but keep listening out. Keep your radios on at all times. How far are we off now, Doc? Less than an hour. No solid object visible on the televiewer? No, Jet. Well, gentlemen, we'd better put on our suits. If it is a meteor swarm, anything might happen once we enter it. But it's a risk I'm convinced we have to take. If a large meteor hits us, we'll never know a thing about it. Now, stay at your post from now until further orders, and good luck. A nice, cheerful prospect, isn't it?
You've been listening to episode four of Journey into Space with Andrew Foles as Jet Morgan, David Kossoff as Lemmy, Guy Kingsley Pointer as Doc, Bruce Beebe as Mitch, and with David Jacobs and Anthony Marriott. The orchestra was conducted by Van Phillips, who also composed the music. Journey into Space is written by Charles Chilton and produced by him in the London studios of the BBC.